0: I've been thinking a lot lately about motherhood, remembering all the mothering you did for me, my sister, and my brothers. And I wanted to say thank you, even if that thank you is far too late and far too faint. This is now your 31st Mother's Day, 31. And after all these years, only now am I beginning to imagine the endless secret and hidden ways you loved me. How many diapers must you have changed? How many trips to the doctor? How many nights sitting up with a scared child after a nightmare? How many prayers did you pray for me, for my first job, for my marriage? I've always been thankful for you, but I've seen things a little differently now that I'm a mom too. Never have I felt so ill-equipped, and never have I felt so honored to occupy the role I once knew only through you. I am honored to be chosen to share in those 3 a.m. cries of distress as you once did. Honored to pour my soul into a precious new life, knowing that these little ones may never realize the depths of that sacrifice. The honor, somehow, is greater because that sacrifice is largely secret, uncelebrated, mundane. As I reflect on your sacrifice and compassion, done in hiddenness and humility, I'm actually beginning to see the familiar person behind it all. Through you, I see Jesus, the carpenter and yet the king, humble to the end, obedient to his calling, loving to those who hurt him, committed to his father's will. Yes, mom, you show him to me and you invite me to behold his glory with you. Now, as a parent, I cherish afresh a truth that I believed for years. God is our father. God calls you and me his children. He has served us in that same hiddenness and humility. He has poured his soul into our lives, making us precious. So on this Mother's Day, I want to honor you for being my mom. But more than that, I want to thank you for being a reflection of Christ. You were the first picture I had of God's love. And I thank him that that picture is even clearer now than it was then. I love you.
1: happy Mother's Day at all of our campuses. This is part of my Mother's Day gift to my mother so she could always see the pastor she wanted her son to become. So on one day a year, she gets to have that. So anyway, for those of you that were looking for something to write in your Mother's Day card besides just uh, uh, have a nice day or aren't you glad I'm your kid or something like that, um, I think that video will give you plenty of lines that you can use. Unfortunately, you cannot use them this year because your mother will know uh, where you got them, but bookmark that video and you can use it next year. Um, Mothers' Day is, of course, a day that we honor some among us who um, we believe rarely receive um, uh, the recognition that they deserve. It is a day to celebrate some of the most noble and I would say fierce warriors in our culture, and that is our mothers. Uh, we've been calling 2018 at the Summit Church, we've been calling it the year of prayer, and during our services each weekend, we've took and taken a few moments just to pray about something going on in the church or the community, and so uh, this morning we just thought what more appropriate thing to do than for us to spend a, just a few moments. Thank you, God, um, for the gift that our mothers are in um, our church and, and our families and um, praying for their ministries, which is what it is, their ministries, their incredibly important ministry of bringing up the next generation to know and follow Jesus and serve Him in His kingdom. So at all campuses of the Summit Church, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Father, it is difficult for us to think of a more difficult or more important assignment than rearing the next generation. And so we pray that you might empower our mothers, especially those that are in the trenches right now with young children, to give them the patience, the wisdom, the gospel understanding to raise their children to love you, to love the gospel, and to serve the kingdom. Father, we are grateful to you for the sacrifices that our mothers have made in order to make us who we are. Father, at the same time, we recognize that for many this day, can be a day of sadness because it brings up feelings of loss or regret, maybe even feelings of estrangement. For some, this day brings to the surface the pain of unfulfilled dreams or unmet expectations. So God, on days like this, we are asking that you remind all of us that our identity is not as mothers and fathers, husbands or wives, it is as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Would you remind especially here, the ladies of the Summit Church, that they hold a special place of honor before you, not because of a particular assignment that they have or have not been given, but because of the worth that you placed upon them when you called them into your kingdom, when you sent your son to die for them so they could be yours forever, and because of the assignments that you have given to them before the day that they were born. God, for those who struggle with the pain of loss in this day, would you remind them that even better than one day of recognition each year, is the joy of being called a daughter of the King of Kings. Thank you, Father, for the gift that mothers are to us. We recognize that they revealed something about you to us, who you are and who they were. And we thank you for their ongoing presence in our lives, Lord, and so we give you praise for every good and perfect gift which comes from above. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So to our mothers, we salute you. To all of our ladies, we honor you. Summit Church, would you put your hands together at all of our campuses, and would you celebrate and thank God for the gift that our sisters in Christ are. Amen. Amen. Well, this is our third week in a series that we are calling Listen, in which we are unpacking some of the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. The series is called Listen because that is the word that Jesus often used whenever he told these parables. It indicated that the real meaning in these parables was often hidden below the surface, and so that only those of right disposition of heart, right posture of heart would be able to perceive his meaning. So if you got your Bibles this weekend, and I hope that you do, um, at all of campuses if you will take them out and open them to Matthew 20 or turn them on to chapter 20 and scroll down there let me see the warm glow of God's word illuminating your faces like I love so much um, uh, as you're turning there you know being able to listen and truly understand what is being said is a critical life skill in any context uh, the first week I, I I told you a story about how important it is in marriage to, to learn to listen I told you about one of our campus pastors who didn't really listen to his wife and he ended up with the $1,400 credenza that he could not afford. Uh, when I was, uh, it reminded me of a story I heard when I was young about a couple of uh, rednecks who were out in the woods hunting together, and all of a sudden one of them grabbed his chest and fell to the ground, and um, he, he, he he was scarcely breathing, and, and uh, his eyes were, were rolled back in his head, and so the other redneck website is Nextel and calls 911. He gasped for the operator. He says, I think Bubba is dead. I think Bubba's dead. What do I do? So the 911 operator on the other end of the line responded in a very Calm and measured voice. He says, Okay, sir, but you know, before we do anything, we need, we need to make sure that he's dead. Well, there was a moment of silence and then a loud shotgun blast. Then the redneck's voice came back on the line and said, all right, now what? Now, I'm positive that story is not true. But the point is, the point is, sometimes you got to listen to not just the words that are being said, you got to listen to what is being meant by the words that are being said. And if there were ever a place that that was true, it's going to be the parable that we are going to encounter today. Um, Today, this story that Jesus tells is going to get at the heart of one of the most fundamental elements of our worldview, and that is our sense of justice. There are few things that are ingrained into us as much as our sense of justice. Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you consider yourself conservative or liberal, young or old, you have a deep-seated need for justice that resonates deep in your heart. One of the phrases that I never had to teach any of my kids was that phrase, that's not fair. I don't know where they heard it. I don't know Probably you your kids maybe, but um, they never learned it from me. Um, but they just instinctively know that's not right and I'm not being treated fairly. Justice makes us feel like there is an order and a meaning to life. It gives us a sense of control. It makes us feel at peace. Thus, one of the most frustrating things for us in faith is when God doesn't seem to be operating according to our rules of justice. Jesus addresses this frustration head-on in this parable, and this teaching that He's going to give to us, while confusing and, dare I say, frustrating, maybe bewildering at first, is critical in learning to trust God and learning to be at peace with what he's doing in the world. I just put it this way. If you have ever asked God, if you've ever looked toward the heavens and said, God, why are you letting this happen to me? God, why'd you let this happen to me? Why'd you let this happen to them? God, it's not fair. that's a question that has ever come up in your heart, then Jesus told this story for you. This parable, I'm going to tell you, has the potential to be an absolute game changer for many of you and will probably do more to help you trust God and be at peace with what he's doing in your life and the world than maybe anything that I've ever taught from up here. Matthew chapter 20 is where the parable is, but we're going to start the story with the last verse of chapter 19 because the story in chapter 19 sets up the reason that Jesus told the parable in chapter 20. You know, unfortunately, sometimes the chapter breaks in our Bible come at the wrong place. They weren't part of the original thing that Matthew wrote. We added them later. And usually they're in good places, but occasionally, like this one, it totally breaks up the context so that you don't connect what Jesus is saying to what he just said. And this is an illustration where you got to understand the story leading up to this one to understand the meaning of the parable. All right, the story in chapter 19 is of Jesus's encounter with a guy that we now refer to as the rich young ruler. Well, the rich young ruler was, as his name implies, he was a young, successful, morally upright community leader. Evidently, he had it all. He had money, he had power, he was probably good looking. I'm sure everybody was jealous of him. Well, one afternoon he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, Lord, what else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now you got to hand it to him. He at least realizes that all of his accomplishments in life, if he dies and does not go to heaven, that they are all ultimately worthless. The problem was that the whole basis of his question was wrong. There is nothing that we can do to earn eternal life. If there had been something that we could do to earn eternal life, Jesus wouldn't needed, have needed to come as a baby and grow up and live the life we're supposed to live and die the death we were condemned to die. He could have instead just sent down an instruction manual that told us what we needed to do right? But instead, Jesus had to come and do something we couldn't do. So if there had been something that we needed to do, Jesus wouldn't have come. So instead, in order to obtain eternal life, you've got to admit that there's nothing you can do. And you've got to give up control of your life to Jesus so that he can do it for you. We have to admit that all of our riches, whether we're talking monetary riches or the riches of our talents or even our spiritual riches, that they're all ultimately worthless before God and we've got to receive eternal life and God's favor as an undeserved gift of grace. This is what Jesus explains to this young man, but sadly, he walks away because his possessions are just too many. And his sense of worthiness is too great that he couldn't, just could not let those things go. And Jesus ends that whole encounter by saying, verse 30 of chapter 19, you see many who are first will be last, and the last will be first, and then he tells this parable starting in the next verse there, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a master who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, this kind of work situation right here is not super common today, um, where basically you'd have a group of laborers that would gather at various spots in the city and um, construction crews or farming crews or whatever would come along and pick up the labor that they needed for the day. You just hire them for the day. It is actually quite common in many parts of the world. um, Where I lived in Southeast Asia, not far from my house was a little place where all the guys of the, um, the community would gather who didn't have jobs and people would come along and pick them up. And Some guys would get picked up early and some guys will get picked up at noon and some guys will never get picked up. I I do know there are still a few places even in Raleigh-Durham where this still happens. Uh, I know that because one of our um, staff members, her husband who drives a F-150, said he had um, uh, 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 one of his tires went flat. So he pulls over in the city on, on the side of the road to try to change his tire. And as he's changing his tire, he hears this commotion and he looks up and a bunch of guys with tool belts on are starting to hop in the back of his truck. And he's trying to explain to them, like, that's not what I'm here for. I'm trying to change my tire. I appreciate your willingness to help. But um, So it still happens, but it was really, really common in those days. And so he's telling a story that everybody would have understood. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Denarius a day was the day rate back then. Uh, it was a standard wage. It was fair. It was predictable. Everybody was happy. I'll give you a denarius. You worked for 12 hours. Going about the third hour, this master saw others standing idle in the marketplace. Now, they measured their hours um, from 6 a.m., the start of the workday. So the third hour would have been, of course, 9 a.m. And he sees these guys standing around the marketplace, and he says to them, you go into the vineyard also. Whatever is right, I will give you. Now, here's the thing to notice here. They don't agree on a price. See that? There's no contract. The first people enter into a contract. You work 12 hours, I give you a denarius. These people, he doesn't promise them anything. He just says, just trust me, I'll do what's right by you. And they believe the master. They trust in his goodness. They trust in his promise to take care of them, and they go. Going out about the sixth hour, six hours from 6 a.m. is noon, and a ninth hour, 3 p.m., the master does the same. Again, no contract. Next verse, about the 11th hour, which would be 5 p.m. from 6 a.m., 5 p.m., that's when pretty much everybody gets off work. Um, but around the 11th hour, he goes out and found others standing around. He said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because nobody's hired us. He said to them, will you go also into my vineyard In my vineyard also? Again, notice, no contract. Only the very first guys get a contract. Everybody else just trusts the goodness of the master and trust in his promise to take care of him. Verse 8, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Start with the last, start with the guys we just hired an hour ago, and lead up to the first. And when those he hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more than a denarius because they'd been working a lot longer than the other guys, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, which is understandable, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat." Now, here's what's happening, just in case you got lost there. The master, at the end of the day, the landowner lines them all up with the more recently hired workers at the front of the line and the earliest workers who've been working 12 hours at the very back of the line. And he opens up his bag of coins and he says, all right, 5 p.m., guys, where are you? And they all step forward. They, of course, they're, they're fresh and they're energetic. They still smell nice. There's no sweat marks under their arms. Their manicures are still impeccable. Their shirts are still tucked in. And the master says, now nah, I promised you guys I'd take care of you, right? So here's a denarius for you and a denarius for you and you get a denarius and you get a denarius and you get a denarius and on the line, uh, down the line, he he starts to go. Well, the guys who've been working there all day are way at the end of the line, but they can see what's going on. And so they start to get excited because they're like, well, man, this is crazy generous. If he's giving people who work for an hour a denarius, Imagine what he's going to give to us. They start counting that out in their fingers and their toes, and they're pretty excited. But finally, when he gets to them who've worked for 12 hours, um, the master says, and a denarius for each of you. At which point they respond, wait, no fair. We're getting the same thing that they got. Verse 13, but he replied to them, friend, am I, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me to work for a day for a denarius? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? Now, I just imagine y'all that when the master said that, I I think some of them probably thought, well, yes, actually I do begrudge you your generosity. Honestly, I would rather have justice. I understand justice. Justice is quantifiable, it is predictable, it feels fair, it's comfortable. I wanna deserve what I get and I wanna get what I deserve. And I imagine that is probably when Jesus got a twinkle in his eye and said, really, really, you really want justice? You want to talk about what you really deserve? I don't think you want to go there. Justice is a dead end. Literally, it is a dead end. You see, that's where we zoom out from this story to the larger picture of the New Testament, and here's what we realize. First, if God gives any of us what we deserve, we are all doomed. The Bible says in Romans 6, 23, that the wages, the reward, the penalty, what we earn through sin is death. That means if we're going to get technical about it, that's what we deserve anything more than death and separation from God forever in hell is sheer, undeserved grace and mercy. So let's stop talking about what we deserve. Instead, it is better to have the relationship with the master that the 11th hour guys have, where you just go with him trusting in his goodness and his promises to take care of you. I mean, think for just a minute, if you will, about the one who is telling the story. I mean, according to the New Testament, Jesus is really the one who worked all day and we all sat around and did nothing. And then at the end of the day, not only did Jesus not get what he deserved, he was punished for our laziness. The wages that he was due were given to us, and the punishment that we deserved was placed on him. He lived a perfect life and then died the sinner's death. On the cross, he was beaten and whipped and crucified and tortured for sin, not for his sin, but for our sin we by contrast we live the sinner's life and we reap instead the reward of the righteous you know sometimes i uh, will read a business book and there's a discussion that appears in a bunch of different forms in these business books of what's more motivating to people to to an employee is it the the carrot or the stick Right, the stick is the threat of punishment, like a mule. You know, you can beat the stick if they're not going. Or um, the the carrot is, uh, you know, what you reward them with. And it's like, well, in business, is it better to to threaten people with punishments if they don't do what's right, or is it better to reward them if they do what's right? And it's always, you know, interesting theories on either side. But it's really interesting when you think about what God. How did God motivate us through the gospel? Did He do it with the carrot or the stick? Trick question. Both. But He took the stick of justice and beat Jesus with it. And then he offered us the carrot that Jesus deserved as the reward. He gave it to us as a free gift. You want to talk about fair? Really? I don't think you want to go there to fair. But incredibly, Jesus has offered us grace. And when you see what Jesus was willing to go through to obtain that grace for you, surely you could trust him and just go with him like the 11th hour guys did, right? And trust him to do what's right in your life. You know, it's interesting to me when you consider that the master of this parable could have avoided this whole controversy simply by paying the guys in the order that he hired them. Had he paid the first guys first and given them their denarius and sent them on their way, they would have been happy and they would have been none the wiser. Yet he insists on paying them in reverse order so that the first guys who worked 12 hours see the guys who only worked one hour are going to get the same thing that they got. It's like he's trying to pick a fight. Right? It's like he's he's deliberately creating controversy, but he's doing it this way to make a point. And the point, listen, the point is not to advocate some new Marxist Christian business philosophy where everybody gets paid the same regardless of how much they work. Nor is Jesus trying to say that there's going to be no degrees of reward in heaven. Right? There are plenty of places in the Bible that say there will be degrees of reward in proportion to our sacrifices and to our faithfulness. It's not some flat, you know, reward that we all get up there the key to this parable, as with all parables, is context. And the context of this parable is Jesus is responding to the rich young ruler and other people like him who think that they can earn eternal life or that they can deserve the blessings of God. And his point is, you don't want to be in a contract relationship with God. Stop talking about what you deserve. You don't want to receive what you deserve. Better is just to follow the master and trust in his grace and his goodness and his promise to take care of you like the 11th hour guys did, it'll work out a whole lot better for you. then he ends that parable the same way that he started it with literally the exact same verse, the last verse of the parable, 20 verse 16. So you see the last will be first and the first will be last. Better to be last in life, trusting in God's grace than first getting what you think that you deserve. Listen, y'all, so many of our spiritual problems and so much of our spiritual unrest comes from having a contract mentality with God. And by contract mentality with God, I mean believing that God owes something to us and that we want God to give us what we deserve. Let me give you five signs. I'm going to use the remainder of my time here to give you five signs that you were in a contract relationship with God, most of which you'll see right here in the story. Um, These are called like diagnostic questions I'm going to give you that you can determine whether or not you see your relationship with God in a contract form or not. Here is number one, bitterness. Bitterness is the first sign. Uh, Here's the the, the diagnostic question. Am I bitter because God has withheld some blessing from me that I think that I deserve? In this story, the 12-hour workers are bitter and not getting more because they think they deserve more. But again, what Jesus is getting at is really Really, you really want what you deserve. Everything good that you receive in life beyond death and hell is a gift of grace. A lot of times you and I will say to God, well, like, God, why is this bad thing happening to me? Or we talk about, we call it the problem of evil. The problem of evil is the problem that evil things happen to us really, really good people right? And so we say, why is this happening to me? Why is this bad, evil thing happening to me who's such a good person? Jesus presents a a different perspective, and I want you to hear this, okay, just um, in the spirit with which Jesus said it, not me. Um, It's kind of a a, a brash parable uh, or little statement Jesus made. Luke chapter 13, um, evidently in Jerusalem, there had been a, a tower, a building that collapsed and killed 18 people at one time right? And so the question that people presented Jesus with was, they said, well, Jesus, were those 18 people just more wicked than everybody else, and that's why the tower fell on them. Like, maybe God saw them all together at the same place at the same time, and it's like, now's my chance. Boom, makes the tower fall on. And Jesus said, actually, no, um, that's creative thinking, but no, that's not what happened. And then Jesus gives the most politically incorrect statement in the entire New Testament. He says, but I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, the question is not, why did that tower fall on those people? The question is, why did that tower not fall on you? You want to talk about what you did or what they did to deserve it? You all deserve to have a tower fall on you. And every single day that you get up and a tower hadn't fallen on you is a day of grace. The fact that I woke up this morning and there was no tower on my house, The fact that I woke up this morning with sun shining, the fact that I woke up with breath in my lungs is a gift of grace that I do not deserve because what I deserve is death and separation from God. So I should stop talking about what I deserve and I should thank God for grace and that will change my perspective on everything. Listen, if all Jesus ever did in your life, if all he ever did was save you from hell and then after that, everything else in your life was taken would we still not consider ourselves the recipients of incalculable levels of grace, grace that we did not deserve? I mean, think about it. What would, what would even the worst pain and the worst loss on earth, what would that be compared to the joys that you and I experience in eternity that Jesus purchased for us that we don't deserve? I mean, no matter what you go through on earth, and I'm not trying to minimize your pain, but no matter what you go through on earth, don't you think you'll still be singing in eternity that last verse of amazing grace when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun? We've no less days to sing God's grace and his praise than when we have first begun. See, when you say to God, God, you owe me that blessing, you're trying to get back into a contract relationship with God, and I promise you that is not where you want to be. Now, I, know, I know a couple in our church who've struggled for many years, with why God has not blessed them yet with children. And they said, aren't children a blessing from the Lord? Doesn't the Bible say that? Why hasn't God given us that blessing? Um, Why? Why? And listen, that's a normal struggle, and it's a very real question. And it's something that that, that we grieve over, and it's a perfectly legitimate question. But the husband told me recently, he said that quite often for, for us, we have slipped into the mentality that God owes us this. And it's made us bitter and angry toward God. And he said, when we do that, it's like we are disqualifying ourselves from the grace that God has given to us. None of us wants to demand that God gives us what we deserve. None of us wants that. And the greatest blessing that God could ever give us is forgiveness of sin and eternal life and forever fellowship with him. And because God has given us those things in grace, we know that we can trust him with this issue of children. And we will stay, still say, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, even if we never have children on earth. Um, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Number two, here's a second sign that you are um, having a contract relationship with God. Jealousy. Jealousy. Here's your diagnostic question. Am I jealous of good things that others have that i want? Am I jealous of good stuff that other people have that I want? Jealousy is you're, 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 you're mad that, that, that you don't have that. Resentment means you're mad that they have it. There's kind of a two-edged sword there. You're mad at them and you're, you know, you're like, well, I'm mad that I don't have it. In this story, these workers are jealous of what the later workers got because they think that they are more deserving than the other laborers were, right? I mean, that's the whole basis of it. We deserve that, they got it, we should have it. Now we're like that also, aren't we? Don't we look around? How often have you looked around? I've done this. You look around and you say, well, why did they get that opportunity? Why did she get married? Why do they have kids so quickly? Why why are why are their bodies so good looking and healthy? Why am I the one who's getting sick all the time? Why did they get the job? Why did they get the promotion? Why did they get that honor? I deserve those things more than they do. Isn't that the basis of jealousy? But see, don't you see how that again has put you in the mentality of a contract? Is that really where you want to be? Isn't everything good that you have received? Isn't it a gift of grace? And hasn't Jesus promised that he will take care of you? And hasn't he promised you that he'll do what's right? And hasn't he proven that you can trust him? Listen, je- let me tell you about jealousy for a minute. Let me put the, this um, statement about jealousy. Um, a lot of times we're like, well, I should stop being jealous. But we don't deal with jealousy at the roots. We just try to trim off the fruits. The fruit of jealousy springs from two evil roots. The first was the foolish pride that assumed God owes you certain things. And then the second part is unbelief in the goodness of the God who has promised to take care of you. This story attacks jealousy at its roots. It's like, ultimately, if you're jealous, the problem, you don't just need to say, stop being jealous, stop being jealous. You need to pull this weed up by the root. And the root is the pride that thinks that God owes you good things. And it is the unbelief in the goodness of the God who's promised to take care of you. I was thinking this week, um, in my own quiet time, there were two verses that God uh, was just, it just sort of leapt off the page to me. Hey, can I say this real quick? I don't mean to be, take a cheap shot. If you don't read the Bible every day, I don't know how you survive. Because these promises become life to me. They become the things that diffuse jealousy and resentment and anger and keep me away from temptation. And if you just go week by week and I'm the only kind of Bible that I'm giving you, I, there's no wonder that you're withering and dying spiritually. I need the Word of God every single day because otherwise my wayward heart goes off into all kinds of places. So if you're not making it a daily routine where you're getting the promises of God into you, then of course you're consumed by bitterness and jealousy. Um, Here was the verse, Uh, one of them, don't let your heart envy sinners. There is surely a hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. You see see what it's getting at there? Because I'm envious of other people. I'm like, well, how come I I didn't get that? I I got that. And God's like, just shut up. Um, There's a hope for you, JD. You don't deserve that hope, by the way, but there's one for you, and nobody's going to cut it off, so you can just quit complaining, because I got some good stuff in store for you. All right? Here was the other one. Um, uh, Psalm 37, 25. I was young, and now I'm old. I just turned 45 last week, so this one's really personal to me. Um, I was young, and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen their children begging bread. I, I don't know everything that that verse means. But I can tell you that when I get worried and I start getting jealous, it's, it's usually because, well, what happens if this did not happen or what if my kids aren't taken care of here? And God was like, just, just stop. As long as anybody's ever lived, I have always taken care of my children, and I'm a good master, and I didn't give you a contract. I just said, come with me and trust me. And don't you think that you can trust me? And the answer is yes. I'm just like these 11th hour guys, and I'm like, I'll go. I'll go. I know I don't really deserve any of the goodnesses or the promises he's made me. So how can I complain? And how can I be resentful when God gives to somebody else some kind of goodness after how much he's given to me? Tim Keller, Tim Keller says it this way. Yoda says, if Jesus didn't complain when he received a life... it kind of looks like Yoda, doesn't he? Right? <laughs> I hope Tim Keller watches the sermon later. Um, so if Jesus didn't complain when, I, when he received a life infinitely worse than he deserved... How can I complain when I experience a life infinitely better than I deserve, right? Uh, he, he goes on to say, he says, he didn't deserve the death he got, but he did not begrudge it. We do not deserve the salvation that we received through his death, but he doesn't begrudge that either. He doesn't look at us now from heaven going like, I went through all that torture and that wasn't fair. And look at them right now experiencing all that blessing. Why then do I begrudge some other blessing that's given to somebody? Listen, I'm going to tell you that realizing the blessings of your life are not owed to you realizing that they are gifts of grace will change how you look at them. It will transform a person of jealousy and resentment into a person of gratitude and generosity. When you realize that they aren't really from you and they belong, they're out of Jesus's grace. Um, I read this story on, I think it was a blog um, a few years ago about a woman who said that she has young kids and she says, I get one morning a week where I don't, my kids aren't with me. And she goes, dad is like my time. And I just, it's my favorite day of the week, and I look forward to it. I'm an introvert. She says, Well, I go to my favorite coffee shop, which is in the food court at the mall, which I don't understand, but I go there, and uh, she says, Right next to it is my favorite cookie store, which is Mrs. Fields Cookies. And she says, My routine is I get a bag of cookies, and I get a cup of coffee, and I sit down in the food court, and I just have some me time where I read my favorite magazine. She said, So I go on Tuesdays, which was my day to do that, and I sit down in this food court, and I get my cookies and my coffee, and and she said it was really crowded that day, so I had to share a table with a guy I'd never met, an older man, and uh, she said uh, he was reading the paper, and so I start reading my magazine, she says, and I put my, you know, my coffee there and everything, and I look, Um, she goes, I start to look at my magazine, she says, and I look up, and this older man reaches across the table into my bag of cookies, and he pulls out one of my bag, one of my cookies, and he just eats it, she said, I just glowered at him. I just looked at him. She goes, I didn't have the nerve to say anything, but I reached my hand in the bag and just locked eyes with him and took the cookie and ate it right in front of him. She, he just kind of smiled and nodded and was very, super friendly. And She said a couple minutes passed by, he did it again. <laughs> took out another cookie out of that bag. She said, this happened five times. There was one, he and, he and I going back and forth eating these cookies. She said, you get to the end. there was one cookie left in the bag. One. He had the audacity to reach into that bag, pull out that last cookie, break it in half, and hand me half of it. She says, I stood up, I grabbed my stuff, I grabbed my purse, I started walking the other direction. She says, I get about 20 or 30 yards away, I look down at my purse, and there's my bag of cookies completely uneaten and untouched. (laughs) She says, and in that moment, in that moment, all that resentment that I felt for him— turned into just admiration and generosity that this man had just freely shared with me his cookies and he didn't seem to care. He didn't seem to care. Now, now watch, here's the turn, here's the turn. When you realize that all the cookies in your life were purchased by Jesus, not by you, then it's going to change your attitude toward how you use them with other people. All right, you see... A lot of you got a problem with generosity, right? And you got a problem with using all your talents and all your treasures and all your time for you because you still have this foolish idea that all these things originate from you and they come from you and you think you deserve them and that's why you can't share them with other people. But when you see that Jesus died to get every single cookie you have in your life, suddenly you're not gonna hold us tightly to them and you're gonna say, God gave me these cookies. Freely, I have received, freely, freely, I give. All right, so jealousy is your second one. When you go, when you realize this, jealousy and resentment turns into gratitude and generosity here's the third sign um, that you have a contract relationship with God anger anger do I get angry when God doesn't answer my prayers the way that I think that he should when you assume that God owes us all these things you get angry when he doesn't answer a prayer the way that you think he should answer it and you basically say but God I did this or I did that or God I'm a good girl and God, I've always obeyed your rules, and I go to church, and God, I've always been a good parent to my kids, and I did everything that you told me to, to, to do. I, I took them to Awana, and I, I, I had to memorize verses, and I've been a good parent, and I've been a faithful husband, and I obeyed all these rules, and you let this happen. After all that I did, after all the way that I served you, how could you let this happen to me? I want what I deserve, but thank God his goodness in your life is not in proportion to what you deserve. If he marked iniquities, not a one of us could stand because all of us deserve condemnation and death and everything we experience is a gift of grace. And because of that, I know that when I go through pain, it's not a punishment for bad living because Jesus absorbed all the punishment for my sin in my place, which means there is literally no punishment left for me at all. It means that God is never paying me back for something when something bad happens in my life. You know, if if you don't memorize scripture, you should, but if you don't have any verses memorized, this is the first one I've memorized right here. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there if you're in Christ Jesus? None. You know what that means? There is not a single thing that has ever happened to you if you are in Christ where God was paying you back for something bad that you did. And I know you want to nod your head and say you believe that, but how many times When you go through something bad, are you saying, well, how come God didn't give me something better? Is there something that I did? And you still think that maybe he's paying you back. Or ask yourself this, when you pray and you ask God for good things in your life, on what basis are you asking him to give you those good things? Is it based on all the good that you've done? That's foolish. R.A. Torrey, who was a 19th century pastor, uh, read a story where he was uh, talking about a man who had written to him complaining that God had not answered his prayers even though he had served God faithfully for 30 years and R.A. Torrey said he said well if you're asking God to do something for you because you've served him faithfully for 30 years then you're not really praying in Jesus name anymore you're praying in your own name All right? you know what it means to pray in the name? you know what we say in Jesus name at the end of the prayer that's not like a sign to God that we're almost done hey exit circle God I'm about to be finished and just letting you know that's not why we say in Jesus name we say in Jesus' name because we're saying, I expect you to answer this prayer not on the basis of how I've lived. I, you're gonna answer this prayer based on how Jesus has lived. And because you're gonna answer this prayer based on how Jesus has lived, there's no more condemnation. And you're gonna to respond to me like I was Jesus because I only deserve good things because Jesus has earned them in my place. And when you realize that God only responds to you now based on what Jesus deserves, then you'll start to trust that even the bad things in your lives, even when God doesn't answer prayer the way you think he should, you'll start to realize that they are for a good purpose because there's nothing penal. There's nothing that's a penalty in what God ever gives to you. And it'll give you the ability to believe Romans eight twenty eight. Romans eight twenty eight, a very famous verse, all things work together for good. We know all things work together for good to them who love God and were called according to his purpose. Some of you know that verse, but you don't really believe it. Listen, and the reason you don't believe it is because you don't believe this verse right here. If you don't believe that there is no condemnation left for you, then you always assume that something bad happening is because God's either punishing you or because God has forgotten you. But when you know there's no condemnation, then I start to say, even these bad things, they are given to me by God ultimately for his good to be swallowed up in eternity, and I can have peace with them because I know that I am in and under the gracious provision of God. And when you believe that, you will go from anger and bewilderment over the ways of God to peace and rest in the promises of God. Which leads me to sign number four that you are in a contract relationship with God. Insecurity. Here's your question. Do I feel uncertain about where I stand with God? Or do I feel insecure about the future? See, if you've got a contract mentality with God and you assume that what God gives you is in direct response to what you deserve, you will live in a constant state of insecurity. How could you not? Because you'll constantly be asking, have I been good enough to earn his blessing? And every time something bad happens to you, you're going to be asking, am I being paid back for something? You know, in America, a lot of hipsters talk about how much comfort Zen Buddhism brings them. Most people who say that only mean that they like to get quiet, do some stretching, and drink hot tea. And I like all that stuff too, okay? But true Zen Buddhism, when you really get into the philosophy of it, is the complete opposite of rest. Because it is built on the idea of karma. And karma is, if you do bad, it's going to be returned to you. And if you do good, that's going to be returned to you. So when you start to experience something bad, you have to wonder, what did I do that is causing this? And sometimes you can't even remember what bad thing you did. And then when you add reincarnation to it, that means you might have done bad in some life you can't even remember anymore. And your only hope is to be good enough that maybe in the next life you can get absorbed into that great nothingness where you will have no more consciousness. I would humbly say to you that the gospel offers a vastly superior peace and on an entirely different basis. Jesus, the master in this story, tells us to trust his goodness and grace. And just to believe that he's removed all the threat of punishment from your life, that he's turning every bad thing in your life for good, that he will take care of you and supply all your needs just like he has promised, that there's no condemnation left for you, that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and that my God will supply all your need. And I promise you that will give you a rest that clearing your mind and listening to Enya cannot provide you. In fact, I think if you're going to sit around and meditate, I mean, India's fine and nature sounds are great, I like those things too, but it's more important that you understand words of songs like these, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord." Or or one of my favorites that um, we don't sing a whole lot because it's got an old tune, we still sing it sometimes, but the soul that has leaned on, uh, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. Lean for repose means you're resting the weight of your life on him. And he says, when you do that, I'll never, I'll never desert you to your foes. Again, I say this humbly. I'm not trying to pick a fight or be a jerk, but believing that promise is better than clearing your mind and doing downward dog. I I love stretching a hot tea and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with doing yoga, but I'll take the word of God and the promises of Jesus any day. You can start your day with yoga if you want. I'd prefer to start mine on my knees at the feet of my heavenly father with his word open, believing every promise that he has given me. Now, let me give you one quick question here. And then you go do yoga and stretch. I'm not trying to diss on that, so don't write me letters about that. I'm saying, I'm saying that the philosophy behind it, okay, the philosophy of, of Zen Buddhism where you just like still yourself does not hold a candle to the promises that God gives as a gracious God who promises to take all condemnation out of your life and turn everything for good. Now, one quick question here, because I know some of you are going to ask it. You say, well, how do I know that Jesus is on my side? Uh, and Maybe you're even familiar enough with the Bible that you read stories like the one in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, you know, on the last day, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we know you? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And you're like, well, what if that's going to be me? Um, that's a very real question. It's one I've asked throughout my life. And I know many of you ask it. So let me just really quickly answer that uh, because some of you, that will be the roadblock to in believing all this. The best answer I've ever heard to that question came from Charles Spurgeon, 19th century British pastor, who um, I, I said to his congregation, he read that passage and said, for some of you, this bothers you because you think you're going to be in that number. He said, for some of you, you probably are. He said, however, Jesus could never say that to me, ever. And he says, I know you hear that, and you think that that must mean that I think I'm super spiritual and that I'm kind of arrogant. He said, that's not true at all. He says, let me tell you why Jesus could never say that to me. Because I would say, never knew me, Lord? When I was hopelessly condemned with guilt, I looked to you to be my righteousness. And when I felt weak, and I had fallen again and again into sin, I looked at you and said, you've got to be my strength. And when I felt lost, I said, you've got to be my way. And when I felt dead, I said, you've got to be my life. And the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will never, never desert to his foes, not even the foes of sin and death. So Jesus could never say that he never knew me because I leaned on him for everything. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. If you trust yourself just to the grace of the master, It doesn't matter how much or how little you've worked. It doesn't matter if you got hired at the last minute of the last day, and if the only thing you bring into eternity is 30 seconds of the workday, God will give you out of his grace because the abundance of Jesus's grace is so vast and so great, no man could ever count it. It is the best and the safest place in all of the universe. Fifth sign that you're in a contract relationship with God, indifference. Indifference toward the suffering of others. Am I moved to action by the suffering of others? When you believe that the good things that you're experiencing now are the sole result of your hard work, see, then you tend to be callous toward those who have less, right? Because you look at them, you say, well, you're just getting what you deserve. If you would worked harder, you'd have good stuff like me too. Isn't that what we see in this story? I mean, these first workers are like, well, these guys are lazy. They're they're, they're lazy. They didn't work like us. They don't really seem to recognize these guys have families, All they're thinking is, you didn't work like I did, so you don't deserve the good things like I do. Jesus' story challenges their mindset in a very subtle but very fundamental way. Notice when the landowner says to the 11th hour guys, verse 7, if you still got your Bible open. When he says to the 11th hour guys, why aren't you working? Their answer was, well, nobody hired us. I used to think that this last group represented really lazy people like a group of millennials who had played Fortnite all night the night before, and they'd woken up at noon. They'd sauntered out around 4 to see if there was any work, and then they complained, like, there are no jobs in this town. right? And the other guy was like, not unless you want to work 40 hours a week or, or, or whatever. Um, but nothing in Jesus' story indicates that these 11th-hour guys are lazy. In fact, they seem just as eager to work as the first guys. They'd just never been given the opportunity. See, I've pointed this out before that most of the blessings that I am experiencing— whether you're talking about financial blessings or the position that I've achieved or spiritual blessings in my life, almost every one of those can be traced back to graces in my life that I had absolutely nothing to do with. Right? I mean, what did I do to deserve parents that taught me the gospel and taught me the value of hard work and lived it out in front of me? Did I do something as a baby that made me worthy of growing up in a church where I would have access to the gospel? Did I do something as an infant that would make me worthy of being in a good supportive community or even to grow up in the United States where I had access to privilege and opportunity? Was there something that I did as an embryo that God um, saw and rewarded me with the talents that I've used to become um, and and do what I do? Is there something special about, no, none of those things I had control of. I didn't experience them because I was worthier than others. God in his grace gave me opportunities and privileges. I was hired early so were you. The fact that you're here, the fact that you're hearing this means that God hired you early. And that puts me under obligation to those without these same privileges. I am responsible to use any position of privilege I have to empower others. I I showed you a a few weeks ago that you got to understand how the Bible defines justice. Because for most of us, we think of justice as just not cheating people. But according to the Bible, justice is more than just not cheating. Justice is leveraging your position of strength, which you don't deserve, for the empowerment of other people. Justice in our mindset means pulling down the oppressor. Justice in the Bible means helping to lift up the oppressed. And it means that the fact that I was hired early means that I look with compassion on those who haven't been hired yet, and I say, how can I leverage what I have as a blessing to them so that they can experience the blessings that I have been blessed with I think most importantly, the most important dimension of this is spiritual obligation, gospel obligation. You start to think about the gospel itself, listen to me, the way that the apostle Paul thought about it. When the apostle Paul started to talk about the gospel in in Romans, he said, I consider myself a debtor to the Greek and to the barbarian, to people in every nation around the world who haven't heard. The the word debtor that he used, I've pointed out to you, is a a very interesting word because it literally means financial obligation. It was like Paul was saying, I, I'm under financial, I'm under obligation to all these people, but he'd never met any of these people. How was Paul a debtor to a bunch of people he'd never even met? And the answer from the book of Romans is, I didn't deserve to hear the gospel. And the people out there in other nations who don't know Jesus, they're no less worthy than I was. It's not fair that I heard the gospel. It was grace and what's really not fair is for me to receive that grace and not do everything I can to get it to them so they can hear it. So I consider the rest of my life as being under obligation. You know, if you're under financial obligation to the mafia, you owe them $100,000, it means that the money you have is no longer really yours, right? It means that if you get an extra bonus this year in your paycheck, you're not gonna be able to go on a nice vacation. If you get an inheritance, you're not gonna be able to buy a beach house. If you're under financial obligation to the mafia, it means that whatever you get ultimately is gonna belong to them until you pay off that debt. And Paul said, that's kind of how I see my life. Listen, I'm not free. I'm not free to do whatever I want to with my talents. I'm not free to do whatever I want to with my money. I'm not free to do whatever I want to with my time because I am the recipient of a grace that I could never deserve. And it's not fair. It's not fair for me to receive that grace and then not do everything necessary to get it to other people that God wants to bring into his kingdom. That's why we go all over the world. That's why Summit Church sends out people all over the world. It's why we commissioned our 1,000th person just a couple weeks ago to, to lead this church and take the gospel to another place. It's because we're under obligation. It's not fair that we just sit on gospel blessings because the master is still going out to the corner to look for workers. And he's working for workers in afghanistan and he's looking for workers in indonesia and he's looking for workers in other parts of our city and he's looking for workers everywhere and he's like i want you to join me and i want you to recognize the grace that you've been given and i want you to take it to others i'd say that many of you are not engaged in the mission of god and it is a sign that you've never really understood the grace of god you've never understood that you don't really belong to you and every dollar you have every talent you have every second of every day that you have is a gift of grace you don't deserve and when you see that you'll start to say lord i'm under obligation to the nations tell me what we want me to do with my money you tell me what to do with my talents you tell me what to do with my time because i'm under obligation the whole point of this parable get rid of your contract but god that's not a place you want to be and just trust the master and thank him for his grace and go with him and when you do that i promise you i promise you I promise you, when you do that, bitterness is gonna get replaced by gratitude. Jealousy is gonna get replaced by contentment. Anger is gonna get replaced by peace. Insecurity is gonna get flooded out by assurance and indifference. It's gonna get overwhelmed with compassion. You're gonna become a different person. And it's not because you put these on a to-do list. You can never accomplish them through a to-do list. It's gonna be because you dealt with the problem at its root. And the problem at its root was you were so proud and unbelieving that you never really believed the gospel down deep in your soul because the fruit of the gospel is these things. These are just synonyms for the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit are those things and the fruit of the spirit grows out of the root of the gospel. So see, get rid of your contract with God and embrace the grace of God. And it's gonna produce in you a change that you can never understand. Let me, let, let me end with one final, really quick thing for you that are already believers. We give you a cross stick in prayer. We say pray, you know, here's a way to pray. You can remember it as acts. In your prayer time, start with adoration, then go to confession, and confess your sins, then thanksgiving, T, thanksgiving, thank God for things, and then S is supplication, which is just a fancy word for ask. We would have said ask, but that would spell acta, and that's not really catchy. So acts, is easier to remember. What I want you to do is I want you to pray that. Why don't you pray that this week through the lens of what I've just given you, okay? A, adoration, I want you to say, God, thank you for being a gracious God who doesn't give me what I deserve. Then why don't you confess, why don't you confess all those places you know that you don't deserve the grace of God and confess your sins. Then why don't you offer God thanksgiving for specific blessings in your life? And how about after every single one of them, you say, and God, I know I don't deserve that. God, thank you for my marriage. Yeah, it's difficult sometimes, but I don't deserve it. Thank you for my kids. I don't deserve that. God, I'm healthy. God, I, I know people. I'm in a church. God, I know the gospel. I, I own a Bible. I don't serve any of that. Thank you for grace upon grace. And then you start to supplicate, you start to pray for people in response to the grace you've been given. You'll become a whole different person. you become a whole different person. Why don't you bow your heads if you would? Could you just thank God for his grace right now? Right now, at all of our campuses, just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. You say to him, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" just to take you at your word, just to rest upon your promise, just to know, says the Lord. Can you say it is well with my soul? Because I know that my sin, this glorious thought, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. God, if that's the only blessing you gave me, what a glorious truth. It's well with my soul. And God, I can't wait to be with you in eternity because I'm the recipient of grace upon grace. You keep your heads bowed. You stay in this moment of prayer and our worship teams they will come and they'll lead us.